Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Navigating Real Estate Turbulence. I'm John Lafferty with Century 21 Town & Country. I am Tony Abate with Ross Mortgage. Thanks for joining us today. We're gonna we're gonna talk about some fun stuff because it's it's just kind of a what's what's the status of things? What's the pulse of things right now in this market? Um, it, it seems to change by the minute. But you've you've gathered some some information that we were talking about earlier that uh, uh, that is you know things are just different right now in a lot of different categories. Yeah. Uh, and we thought it'd be a, a fun episode to just kind of put a cherry on top of all these and talk a little <laughs> bit about these. So what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about today and touch on a uh, few things. We're gonna talk about flips. We're gonna talk about Airbnb. We're gonna talk about problem properties, and we're gonna touch on. Uh, some things that the focus of buyers has shifted in what their priorities are and some things that they're willing to give up. So we're going to talk about each of those. Let's uh, let's dig into flips. I found this interesting. Uh, so uh, the the flip market, and by the way, uh, when I say flip, I'm meaning uh, an investor buys a property at a really good price, puts some money into it, improvements into it, and then turns around and sells it for a profit. And that's what we call a flip. And so the flip market is at its lowest point in 20 years, obviously, no doubt due to the high prices that people are getting for homes yeah. um, and the cost of making the normal improvements to a flip home have gone up, mm -hmm. which is cut into their profit. And, uh, you know, obviously there's that breaking point of, if I can't make this much profit, then I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting too. Uh, on the surface, uh, and I think we both talk to people like this, um, flips are viewed as easy money. Hey, if I buy that property <laughs> low and I sell it high, I am in. And if I, if I lather, rinse, repeat, I'm going to make a big pile of money. Um, but the reality is, is that even in a more balanced market, <clears throat> they don't always come out in the black, do they? You know, so it's, a, uh, it, it's, not, a, it's not a guarantee for money. Uh, not a guarantee for profit, and you add in the dynamics of this market mm -hmm. between sellers calling the shots and and the price of materials to do that flip. I can see why it's uh, at its low point. Yes, and I and I know people that have done this, mm -hmm. and I, you know, usually it it's one screw up, one big screw up where they bought too high they overvalued what their improvements would be and what they would return on investment would, yeah. would be. They, over, they overdid it on that, the models don't work, and they end up losing their shirts, and they're done. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, they're not flipping homes anymore. I saw that happen a lot, uh, especially with the run-up in value. You could see these, uh, these flippers starting to fall away. Mm -hmm. and, and right now, you know, unless you're buying in some areas and you're gonna, you're gonna buy and hold, it just doesn't make sense to, yeah. to do this right now. But you know, I just want to dig into this a little bit more. From a lender's perspective, mm -hmm. a buyer is purchasing a home that has very obviously been flipped. Mm -hmm. What do you need? Is, is there a, th first of all, is there a threshold uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, flip triggers red flags and, and sirens going off um, where they bought it six months ago? And where they're selling it now, um, what happens in that regard when you've got to borrow, even on a even on a conventional loan, or yeah. do are the rules different? They are. So uh, the, the 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 strictest environment is for the FHA buyers. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are hard-coded uh, limitations of how long the prior seller has owned the home uh, and layered in with that, uh, that run up in price from <clears throat> seller's purchase to the seller's sale to the buyer that we're talking about now. So for instance, if a seller has owned that property for less than 90 days, no FHA financing, it's not gonna happen. Um, when it's from 90 days to six months, there's a set of requirements that, that speaks to, uh, well, do we need a second appraisal if the run up in price has been so much? and in a similar but less egregious way out to 12 months. After 12 months, it doesn't matter. Uh, so, so the answer to the question is for FHA, it's a definite yes, that, that seller history is important. On conventional, it's really more of a function of the appraisal telling the story. So one of the elements that is in a property appraisal is the sale history of that subject property. Mm-hmm. And, and if, there's, if there's obvious differences, hey, this, this seller bought it, 12 months ago for $60,000 and he's selling it today for $240,000, the appraiser's got a story to tell. And, um, and then the lender can make a decision based on that. In most cases, it's, um, uh, it, it, it's a supportable story. You know, that here's the condition of that home before, <clears throat> it was a wreck, and now I did this, I did this, I did this, and now the market will, will bear this, um, this kind of a price. And it's also a function of, of lenders needing to be mindful of fraudulent transactions. So if what do you was, mean by that? Sure. So if it, if it was bought for that sixty thousand dollars and now it's two hundred forty thousand um, dollars, how how valid can we can we confirm that the improvements are justified and that it's supported by the current market? Because here's what's happened in the past, and this was the fraudulent part. Um, when when there is when there is a, a quest for fraudulent activity, then everybody involved, with the exception of one or two, is gonna be in the know. And that includes the appraiser. So if somebody buys a home at $60,000 and says, well, if all this new stuff was put into this home, I could sell it for 240, but I just as soon make that happen without doing all those improvements. And so there's been situations where an appraiser who's in on the fraudulent deal has used substitute photos and doctored the facts to turn in an appraisal to the lender that says it's worth the 240. Um, now, Fannie and Freddie over time have come up with a boatload of tools to, to help be on the lookout for that through cross checks. But then who else is involved? Usually the buyer, a straw buyer as it's often called. They'll write the offer at the $240,000 uh, they're in cahoots with the seller and the appraiser is going to get a little bit too. And then what happens? Loan funds disperse at the closing table and the seller splits it with all the parties that contributed to the fraud. So that's why there is uh, maybe a deeper look into when the property has run up in that, in that value or, or that, that difference, you know, what the seller bought at versus <clears throat> what the seller is buying at. The lender is going to tap the brakes a little bit and say, let's just be sure. So, uh, and, it, and, and the reason is going into the recession, we always seem to compare things to, to what happened going into the recession. There was a great deal of that going on. Uh, lenders were open to have conversations with, with appraisers. Um, they could handpick different appraisers and, and bad things happened. So, um, so that's why you know, there, are, there are certainly limiting factors on the FHA transactions, and there's, there's cautionary processes that happen on the conventional deals with regard to here's what it sold for before, 
here's what I'm selling it for now. Do you ever see a time in the near future where lenders are going to require homes that are flipped that they show the permits that they pulled to renovate a kitchen, renovate a bathroom? Do you see a time anytime soon where they're going to require that? Because let's be honest, you know, there was a lot of flipping going on mm -hmm. in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. There was a lot of flipping going on and not always the best workmanship, right? Not always the, uh, you know, things were done to code mm -hmm. as you can see, but buyers were scooping them up because they were such a great deal. Um, and the, the fear was at that time, you know, in our circles, what are these homes going to look like five years from now? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to all this work that was done hurriedly right. by people who were in the game, these investment flips? Um, so it would seem to me that as a, as a service to buyers mm -hmm. and, and to the banks themselves, that they would want proof that permits were pulled and the city, somebody from the city signed off on it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't think this is... Tony talking, you know, I, I can't speak from a policy standpoint from the company or the industry, of course. I don't think that we're going to see a broad-based requirement for that. And the reason is, is that the is that the requirements and the guidelines surrounding permits, 31 flavors, depending on the community at hand. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, the way a permit is issued in one community could be very, very different than the community for another, or that community might not even require a permit. But here's where it can uh, come into play. So we have that run up in price like we talked about in the flip and there's questions as to, as to how supportable all that is. And if it looks dicey, uh, one of the things, you know, I, I think it comes more into play with what the appraiser is doing on their job. So if something looks questionable, uh, and I mean, it was like a, let, let's say it's extreme. They bought it for 30,000 and now they're gonna sell it for $250,000. Um, and the appraiser, goes to public records, which they're supposed to do anything, and they don't see permits for any of that work, they're probably gonna cite that in the appraisal. And that could, that could cause a lender to make a different lending decision because again, things just aren't adding up. It just doesn't seem copacetic uh, on the way it's coming together. So while I don't see it becoming a requirement per se from a lending guideline, mm -hmm. I can see it contributing to whether, contributing to the validity of the data and the transaction. Um, we see that kind of thing with square footage differences. You know, you'll see, you see it in the multi-list and you know, the multi-list has one square footage, the appraisal has another, and the public records has another. And what do you know? There's a room addition that nobody pulled a, public, or per, pulled a permit on. And that's where you get into that discrepancy on the square footage. It's, extra, it happens. It's extra square footage. It's, I don't want to be taxes on <laughs> heavens that. Heavens no. Heavens no. So yeah, you know, you're right. There, there's almost there's almost uh, momentum into not pulling permits, right? There is. But you know what's interesting is uh, there's a municipality. When, when I uh, was selling real estate in California, the municipalities, uh, Los Angeles and Burbank, there was an ordinance in place that allowed the municipalities to claw back taxes um, from when an improvement was made and not disclosed to the taxing uh, wow. authority, yeah. the, the, the assessor's office. Mm -hmm. So if an assessor wasn't aware that a brand new kitchen was put in, they're gonna go back and say, okay, when was that kitchen put in? And we want those back taxes. Yeah, interesting. Um, so they're doing that 
but it's tough, right? Yeah. I mean, who do you penalize? Do you penalize the buyer coming in? Do you penalize the person that bought the house yeah. and had been there for that number of years? I mean, I don't know. That's a good point. And especially <clears throat> if this is happening because there weren't permits pulled. That's right. How far back do you claw back? Right. You know, how do you, who establishes, well, the improvement went in three and a half years ago. Which is why I don't think... Thing. I don't think they've done much enforcing with that because mm -hmm. it, it's just really hard to figure. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Easy to rebut, you, you yeah, know? And is. so I, I think that the concept is sound, but how do you how do you get some meat on the bone with it? I, I can see every one of them being challenged. That's and, right. Yeah, so the only winners are the attorneys in that case then. <laughs> I think you're right. Okay, so Airbnb. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, it was interesting to read that uh, Airbnb has decided that they're going to try and partner with municipalities. The uh, eviction order for landlords to be able to evict tenants who haven't been paying rent, Okay. Um, that expires June 30th. So unless it gets extended, um, Landlords will actually be able to start evicting, start eviction proceedings for mm -hmm. tenants who haven't been paying rent regularly. And so Airbnb has said publicly that they want to work with municipalities to find out which landlords have actually evicted tenants and then they will not work with them on their site to allow them to do short-term rentals, which I thought interesting. is interesting. Now, of course, if you're Airbnb, you're at the mercy of every municipality. If they don't tell you, then you'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a gesture of, hey, this is what we'd like to do, but in reality, I don't think it has much teeth at all. So are they are they doing that? I guess I'm trying to figure out why Airbnb is taking that position. Is it a goodwill gesture to say, hey, if if somebody is being the mean landlord? We're not going to. We're not going to. We're not going to contribute to their machine and let them Airbnb it after they kick out a tenant. Is that where That's it's going? That's right. Okay. That's right. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I just. I. Yeah. Well, Airbnb has had to kind of work hard to be looked at favorably by municipalities in some cases. It's true. Right? Yeah. And uh, and there and there's you know currently there is short-term lease legislation in Lansing that is under consideration. Uh, that's kind of stalled at the moment. Okay. Um, and what this legislation would basically do is take short-term rentals out of the commercial use realm. So right now, if you have a landlord-tenant relationship, um, that's a landlord-tenant relationship. Okay. Um, if you have a short-term lease, it's considered commercial. Okay. Um, and of course, most HOAs ban the commercial use of property mm -hmm. uh, in their development. So where does this apply mainly? Well, it applies on lakes, rivers, um, you know, where they have associations and most of them do because they don't want um, you know, people letting their value of their home go down because it brings down the neighborhood, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So that's why HOAs were kind of established in the first place and to prohibit loud noise and partying and all that other stuff. So the idea of the legislation is um, it'll, it'll change that designation of short-term leases mm -hmm. uh, to residential use. So now HOAs just can't say you can't, it's, it's a commercial use of property. You can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so it'll allow 
owners of properties on lakefront and different areas to be able to short-term Airbnb their homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, we can see the flip side of that, what the issue is, but this legislation says you as a homeowner who lives next door to this still have nuisance laws and things at your disposal and your tools that you can use if somebody's having party or people every weekend come to that house. Um, so anyways, that's in committee right now. It's kind of on pause, but that's the idea is it, it gives the power back to the person that owns the property to use that property as long as it's not breaking any laws yeah. as they see fit. Interesting. Okay. So it's a uh, it, it's become uh, sort of a property rights legislation is how they're kind of framing it. So yeah. um, I can see both sides of it. For sure. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah, I think instance. Airbnb is probably lobbying on behalf of that legislation pretty aggressively. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and in that legislation too, uh, if I understand correctly, there will be a limit on um, the number of days that you can stay in an Airbnb before it becomes a landlord-tenant relationship. Okay. The talk was 30 days, and then there was also talk of making it 27 days or 28 days, so you can only stay 27 consecutive days. Mm. Airbnb has their own policy. Uh, I don't know what that is, but anyways. Interesting. It was an interesting yeah. stand that they took. Yeah. Um, problem properties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is uh, this this was interesting. This this uh, NAR did a uh, a study and then uh, you know offered a presentation on ways to improve blight um, in vacant homes and dilapidated homes that people are still living in. And they, they had a, a whole wealth of solutions and suggestions to, to help the poorer neighborhoods. Because let's be honest, if you're a senior citizen and you've lived in this home for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, and this is, this is all you have, well, as a senior, you, you know, there's people on fixed income, mm -hmm. they don't have a lot of money, so when the roof starts to leak, they don't have the money to fix yeah. it, the equity to fix it. Um, so things start getting dilapidated, it starts leading to further problems, and, and pretty soon the home is uninhabitable. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there are less than people who buy homes and, and with the idea of renting them out or with the idea of just buying and holding yeah. and just let the home go to crap right. and let it dilapidate and everything else. And of course, in bad neighborhoods, or not bad neighborhoods, but in certain areas, those things become drug houses, transient houses, mm -hmm. um, houses for uh, you know uh, people to do uh, illicit and illegal things in, mm -hmm. uh, and, and not good for a neighborhood. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's been um, you know they're, they're, the, the problem was exaggerated when uh, uh, you know in the city of Detroit they had a great deal of vacant properties and investors were buying them sight unseen. They're paying so little, mm -hmm. they didn't really care. Yeah. You know, hey, I don't care if I get repossessed. If I have an opportunity to sell it and make some money, I'm going to do that. But if I don't, then I have no incentive to pay the taxes. I have no incentive to mow the lawn. So uh, good for NAR for, for stepping in and trying to find some solutions because everybody loses when, when those kind of negative things happen. Agreed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the city of Warren um, has been viewed at times to have a heavy hand in how they do some of these things, mm -hmm. how they uh, 
how they, uh, you know, inspect properties and right. um, and slap a certificate of occupancy or a tag on a property. You know, I'll tell you that they're pretty vigilant. If they find out a property is vacant or vacated, mm -hmm. if they get wind of it, they're pretty aggressive in slapping a tag on it that says you must have the city come in and inspect this property before anybody can occupy it. Yeah. Um, and it's their way of you know, kind of a couple things, making sure that the house is habitable and that it's up to code with, with current things. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really striving to fight, it's an old term, cliche term, but the, the slumlords. Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and you know, I'm not one to advocate uh, an overly heavy hand from the government, but, but to me, this, this really seems like everybody wins when that kind of thing happens because You've got the property owner who's across the street from one of the most blighted properties, and that property owner is doing everything right. He's maintaining his home, he's cutting the grass, he's, he's, he's keeping it in good shape, mm -hmm. but his value is, is severely negative impacted, negatively impacted by the properties that are nearby that are neglected. And that's not fair. That's, mm -hmm. that's you're, you're getting at the crux of it right there. And that was their conclusion is mm -hmm. if, if you help maintain those other properties or have minimum standards for those other properties, well, it not only helps those properties, it helps the neighbors. Mm -hmm. And what happens to the values? Well, they go up. Right. And that increases the tax base for the school system in the communities that they're in. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a win-win for everybody yeah. in the end. And that's and that's their conclusion. Yeah, yeah. It's creating conditions and incentives for more of the homeowners to be like that guy who's maintaining his home properly. And then every, everything happens positively when that happens, like you described. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, our last topic, just uh, just talking about uh, things that buyers are really looking for in the market. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the pandemic has had an effect on, on really what is important for a buyer when they're considering mm -hmm. where they want to live. And steaming right to the top and never being on this list before is a, a quiet location. Interesting. Because people are working from home. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear all the noises when they're on the Zoom call with work or on the phone with somebody overseas. They want to be able to have a, a you know, a, that quiet uh, Zoom call, that quiet phone conversation. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one, too. And I've, I've worked with buyers that are selling their home. And you've probably seen this more than I have. But uh, in, just in side chatter with what's going on with them, they'll say, you know what, we're both working from home indefinitely, which, you know, even as, even as restrictions are, are on the cusp of being lifted, there's a lot of companies that are saying, we don't have a date. You're going to be working from home for as long as we can see. Not all of them, but many of them. And I've, I've talked to folks that are selling their home because the, their, their conclusion is, we're both working from home, but we can only really accommodate one good home office and the other spouse's working in the kitchen or working, it's like, this, we're gonna kill each other. This has to be fixed. Yeah. So it has changed things for sure. It, it definitely has. Another one on that list is a large backyard. Okay. Now that's, that's kind of been a consideration before, but it's jumped up the list. There's more people taking it into consideration. Yeah. And, uh, and I think obviously part of it has to do with pets. A lot of people adopted dogs. Um, yeah. during the pandemic. And so they, they want a bigger backyard for their pet to run mm -hmm. around in or to go hang out in. Because when you're in the house, um, inside working all day, mm -hmm. I mean, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to go hang out outside just to, just to breathe some fresh air and just hang out and just 
So having a, a larger yard gives you some separation between you and the neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. I can see that, yep. You know, the other, another thing that jumped on the list that was never on before, it was always a consideration when I've talked to most buyers, very few unless they had, um, uh, well, it's a garage is, is a major consideration. And usually with a lot of first time buyers, mm -hmm. it was, yeah, a garage would be nice, but I don't have to have a garage. Mm -hmm. Only those that typically were like working on cars and doing different things that a garage was uber important, but it's uh, it, it's up near the top of the list of importance. Interesting, interesting, yeah. So anything anything uh, kind of passe now? Anything falling off the list that was a hot item before? Yeah, you know, at, at the top of that list, having a pool. Okay, yeah. Don't really care anymore. Yeah. Uh, some do, some put it as uh, in importance, but it's fallen by a big number, by almost 25% is they're willing to buy without. And that's, that's a big deal. Um, another, another one sort of high on the list is man caves, so to speak. They're not desirable anymore, according to- Well, the they're, willing to, they're willing to buy a house that doesn't have interest, or even the possibility of having one. Okay. I mean, you know, you go back the last five, six years, man caves, we're always, you know, you know, the term for man cave. Right. But it was, you know, hey, I've got this place in the basement that I can go do my thing, hang out, have the boys over, uh, watch some sports. We're not, uh, you know, we're not taking over the whole house. We're just mm -hmm. in the basement in our man cave doing our thing. And uh, and that's uh, one of the things that, uh, hey, not so important. Interesting. Willing to, great if it has it, doesn't have it. Uh, okay with that too. Yeah. Wow, that came and went before I even had a man cave. So never had. My, I guess my chance has passed now. Yeah. Well, yeah, me too. But I, but I, but that's just some of the things that were that were interesting and and that are more consideration now, a little less now, mm -hmm. um, and and just how it's it's changed a little bit in priorities. And and you know you that kind of squares with people who are, let's say, who've lived in Royal Oak or Berkeley or Ferndale and have been there for you know, a number of years and for whatever reason need a bigger house because maybe their family's growing mm -hmm. or have decided this house isn't big enough for because one of us is gonna work from home or both, both of us are gonna work from home. We need more space. And if we're gonna get more space, then why don't we get a bigger piece of property with that space mm -hmm. um, with more areas where you can work, I can work, and where are you going to find that that's affordable? You got to go north. Got to go out. Yeah. Got to go yeah. out yeah. in a way. And people are willing to do that because if you don't have to drive to work, then living in Grand Blanc, living in Genesee County, living in Saginaw County, or even further north or going up north, yeah. it all starts to make sense. And I can see that too. You know, if you're if you're in tight quarters and you use the example like the Royal Oaks and the Berkeleys, those kind of communities. Um, if you're gone for 10 hours of the day and then you come home to that, that closeness may, may not be such a negative. But if that's your whole day, I can see the feeling where, you know, the walls and neighboring houses are kind of closing in on me. I, I need a little breathing room. Interesting. That's yeah. a that's a very astute observation. Mm, very yeah. true. I, I'm sure that's what a lot of people experience or the neighbors are working from home. You're working from home. You're upstairs having a conversation. You can hear them having their yeah. conversation uh, in between the houses. Uh, it's it's plain as day. Yeah, you feel like you never get a break. You never have privacy. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Boy, you and you got to stay on top of that so that when you're talking to sellers uh, and they bring up, hey, wait till you see my cool man cave, you got to be the one that says, mm, you know what? You, you, the takers may not be as robust as they once were. Things have changed. So cool stuff. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I was. It was. It was fun to. It was fun to look into these. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Talk about them. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, with that, hey, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, we, we like to do these market updates uh, about twice a year, have a little fun with it, just kind of see what the landscape is looking at out there. So hopefully you found this useful today. And if you're interested in more information, reach out to Tony or myself. Uh, we'd be happy to talk to you. Yeah. And I forget to plug. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and follow us on Facebook. Those are the biggies for us right yes. now, right? And our yes. website, Navigating Real Estate Turbulence. And of course, you can find our podcast, uh, just our audio version of these on Apple Podcasts, Apple, Google, and Spotify, I believe. Right. We always miss that stuff. We do. So, thanks, everybody. Thanks.